It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Natalie Bucknell. And along with my co-hosts, Kay Wenigal and Michael Stainel, I recently enjoyed a fascinating discussion with Jay Rutovich. Jay is a research director for the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. She has experience working in the fields of renewable energy and energy efficiency across a huge range of settings. These include a large metropolitan council, Greenpeace campaigning, and as an energy consultant to government, environment groups and the private sector. A lot of the recent public debate about our electricity system left me with many questions about acronyms such as the NEM and AEMO, as well as confusion around how the system works and what the possibilities are for its future. This interview was a great opportunity to capitalise on Jay's expertise to ask these questions and get some expert input on the best way forward. To kick off the discussion, we asked Jay if she was starting from scratch How would she design the ideal energy system for Australia? Australia has renewable resources to die for. We have renewable resources which are really amongst the best in the world. We have a small population. Anybody with any kind of um, vision would be going 100% renewable. Now, of course, that's a transition from where we are now, so we can't do it tomorrow, but if we're saying what sort of energy system should we have, of course it would be 100% renewable because really that's what we've been blessed with. So what about the distribution side of things though? What would that look like in an ideal world? Oh, that's a much harder question and it, I, I think I find it difficult to say, well, what would it be if we started from scratch because I can't separate myself from what we actually have. And we do have a very extensive very well engineered, quite expen- you know, expensive as in we've built it up over a long time, transmission and distribution system. We have a lot of very expert people maintaining it. As far as I'm concerned, this is a fabulous resource. We need to keep it going. We need to make sure that we don't inadvertently duplicate it or duplicate parts of it because our market is not set up right. So it sounds like you're saying in terms of energy production and distribution, we're in a good place or we're heading in towards a good place, but the market side of it is a big challenge for us. I might just backtrack a bit. So in terms of the distribution system, there's probably parts of it. So if we're talking about fringe of grid towns way to the west of Queensland or way to the you know ones that are on the end of a really long stringy line it might make more sense for those to have a what we call an off-grid system a microgrid 
because they do have very good resources and it takes a, a lot of effort to service them, they're vulnerable to if there's storms. However, if that line is actually there and in good condition, that doesn't mean we should go out tomorrow and get rid of it. But certainly planning ahead, those are the situations that off-grid makes sense. Right. Does off-grid make sense in the centre of Melbourne or Sydney? No. We have a, you know, we have the advantage that there's a great concentration, that's what we need to use. And of course that the grid is already there. And, and truthfully, in, in dense areas, it would probably always have made sense to have a grid. And we have built one. It's, it's a really cost-effective way now of getting stuff around, so we need to make sure that it's used to the best that we can. And absolutely, our market has not been designed for that. I understand that we've got one of the largest grids in the world at the moment, and there's now talk of uh, extending it even further, extending it over to Western Australia. Have you got any thoughts on that? I think it would be premature to do that until we'd done quite a lot of research in is that the most cost-effective thing to do? I'm not saying it's not, but I haven't seen anything that convinces me that it is. I think we should get things right with what we have, make sure we're using it well. I'm not convinced that that is the best way to go. I, I heard the argument that Western Australia are two or three hours behind um, Eastern states and so therefore you could shift loads very easily if you had that connection between the two. And, and that was part of the uh, premise in the BZE um, stationary engine report of 10 years ago that we have a high voltage DC link east to west. That's absolutely true about the load shifting but you're talking about a, a lot of capital intensive infrastructure to build that line. So we would really need to compare that with what the alternatives are. So this is looking at what do you need to make the system work with very high penetrations of renewable energy. And you have a lot of choices there. You can have storage, and obviously the cost of quick response storage, so batteries, has really come down. And pumped hydro. You can have pumped hydro, which is excellent both for, it doesn't do as fast response, but it's certainly but seconds excellent. seconds rather than microseconds. Uh, yes, yeah. and, and certainly it's extremely good for storing energy, if that's what mm -hmm. you're wanting to store for, you know, days or, you know, several days worth of shortfall. Um, so you really, you know, and then of course you have the choice of, you just build over capacity of wind, for example, so that then you end up with some curtailment when you don't need it, but you have a bit of an oversupply. So there are many ways of filling that gap. And I think to say we would need to do quite a lot of comparisons before saying, let's go into this very, you know, building a new transmission line, because that's what you're talking about. And I don't think we're that, you know, we haven't done that comparison. I would be surprised if it worked as the most cost effective. We also have different questions that we're looking at here. So one question is, how can we get to 100% renewable energy? And of course, there's lots of ways we can do that. We have lots and lots of choices. The next one is, what's Definitely the most... want to come back to that one then. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we have a question on what's the most cost-effective way to do it. And 
you know, that option of joining WA to the rest of the, you know, to the national electricity market by a DC cable, that's definitely in the, well, is it the most cost-effective option? You certainly wouldn't need to do that to go 100% renewable. Well, Western Australia doesn't have coal. It doesn't have, well, it has a fair bit of wind, but not a, a huge amount, say, compared to South Australia. Um, it has a lot of solar, but that's not storage, and it doesn't have the opportunity for pumped hydro. So the only storage opportunities it would have in a renewable world would be battery storage. Um, no, it has concentrating solar with molten salt. That's an extremely good option oh, okay. for dispatchable generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it has bioenergy, and actually, it will have pumped hydro. There's a lot, you know, there are a lot of developments now in looking pumped hydro with, you know, using seawater. So that really has a lot more situations where it has potential. So. Um, Interesting you say CST, because that was strongly promulgated again in that um, original mm -hmm. BZE report of nine years back now, I think. They, in that report, totally underestimated the, the cataclysmic fall in, in mm. PV. Absolutely. Um, so it's gone a different direction than what they were advocating. But you're saying CST is still a viable option. How, how do the costs compare? It is at the moment more expensive than PV. It becomes, you know, an, an Certainly, if you're looking without storage, it can't compete. Though those costs are coming down, we're not. I get sorry to interrupt, but I guess for a valid comparison, you have to compare a solar a PV array with storage because the CST has the the, the storage built into it. They still actually deliver somewhat different things. It is much easier to store energy with molten salt than it is, you know, in other words, mm -hmm. you get quite a lot of energy stored in a molten salt system, you would need a lot more batteries for that. So yes, yeah, so, you need so to compare yeah. like for like, if you costed that into a PV array with a lot of storage, by whatever means, mm -hmm. um, then are the costs comparable? I'm not entirely sure. I think they would be getting closer. Certainly, if you just look at the storage costs on CST, they're really cheap. Mm. You know, like just the storage. Two stainless steel tanks and a lot of molten salt. Exactly. <laughs> oh, actually, even if you include the incremental cost for increasing the field size, they're still cheap. Mm. Can we go back to the energy market, mm. which we touched on earlier? Yes. Can you give us and, and our listeners a bit of a, an overview of some of the names that we hear banded about yes. in the energy market and how it all hangs together currently? Um, maybe from that you can give us a bit of a critique about the AEMOs and the MEMS and the AMCs. All of those, yes. Okay, so the national electricity market really is it's the eastern states it covers the area which is interconnected with a with physical um, transmission cables and distribution cables and it refers to the the administrative side if you like the actual market the transactions that say whether a generator is putting ele physical electricity into the market and who is purchasing from the market. So it a private body? Or, and we well. have an organisation called the Australian Energy Market Operator, or AEMO, who is tasked with running that market. So they take the bids from, gen you know, they, their responsibility is doing the overall balancing between load and generation because 
I'm sure all your listeners will know that you can't electric, if you don't have your load and your generation balancing, the system becomes very unstable very fast mm -hmm. because if the generation is more, the voltage will shoot up. And vice versa. And vice versa, and it will cause, well, actually what will happen is everything will start tripping, which we've seen a few times recently, and there's a lot of nonsense been talked about. But that's... Is that a government body, or is that a uh, Yes, body? it's, it's But both AEMO and NEM are government bodies? Sorry, NEM isn't a body. NEM is a description of... Ah, of these bodies. Of, no, the NEM is a description of the, the thing, the national electricity market, which is operated by, the, by AEMO, the okay. Australian Energy Market Operator. So most of the time, companies operate under market forces and the price of power goes up when there's less generation available or there's a high demand and then vice versa goes down when there's a lot of generators on the, on the system. Yes, um, and generators bid into the market. They bid, I think, at half-hourly intervals. And you are actually penalised if you put electricity into the system which you, when your bid hasn't been accepted. Mm -hmm. So you're penalised oh. in both directions because AEMO's role is to balance the generation and the load. Mm. And there has been quite a lot of talk lately about well, what causes the big price spikes that we've mm. seen. And that is partly just a straightforward, you know, demand is very high, maybe there's some issue with supply which is pushing that up for some reason. Um, but there is also the potential which of generators gaming the market you know, deliberately taking things offline to push that There seems up. to be very strong evidence of that happening. There is certainly some evidence. And, and AEMO doesn't have the wherewithal to do anything about that? They, there is an investigation if the price goes above, I believe it's um, $5,000. They investigate incidents. For megawatt hour? Yes. And, of course, there are some generators that are set up to really just meet the peaks in demand. So open cycle gas generators, their whole, they are there to generate, oh, maybe 10% of the time, maybe even less. And so, of course, they, w they wouldn't be there if they couldn't get high prices, and that's reasonable. You know, that's not, a, there is a role for that type of generation. But is our system working at the moment? Probably not. I, there are some other, more fundamental issues that our whole system and our it's partly our tariffs you know the tariffs in our how do people pay for it how do consumers pay for electricity all of our tariffs were set up really in a market that was very different from today and even more different to where we're going so it was set up when all the generation was centralized it was all coming one way to the consumer so how do we, you know, there is a really genuine question about how do we pay for the, the distribution and transmission network, all the poles and wires, and of course the, the services and the people and the software that maintain them in good order. And it used to be that all the generation was one way, so it was more or less just smeared across all the usage. 
That doesn't reflect how those costs are incurred at all. And that probably doesn't matter that much when it's all one way and really our loads were quite different and there wasn't much choice anyway. We have a really different situation now when there's some generators that are using the whole of the system. So, you know, the coal-fired power stations are all centralised. They are all, you know, several hundred kilometres away from most uh, load centres. So really they're using everything. And that's really different from a generator that's actually embedded in your neighbourhood or your PV system on your roof. That doesn't mean that you should pay nothing if you're using the generator that ne that's next door, but probably you shouldn't pay the same as if you're using one 400 kilometres away. On the other hand, from the, the network operator's point of view, the thing that really incurs the cost is what happens at the absolute worst case. Worst case. Mm. That's really what makes the cost but there's somehow this myth that, oh, we're going to somehow switch to a system where everybody just pays for the bit that, you know, cost-reflective mm -hmm. pricing. People mm. talk about it like it's going to fix everything. It's never going to happen. You know, we are never going to have consumers paying $10,000 in that one hour, which is really causing all the problems, because it mm. would just not be acceptable because people couldn't manage that risk and so we have to come up with something which is fair and doesn't keep the kind of implicit subsidy that we are doing to centralise generators not on purpose but just because that's when we set up the system was when there was centralised generators so we're not you know now we're not reflecting the value of actually having the locally distributed generation. So I think we need to think of it a bit of how is it best to pay for this that is, you know, encourages outcomes that are good for the system as well as good for people. And I think, so, for, you know, should it just be cost reflective within our current system where you have this hugely volatile price I would say that's as likely to have unintended outcomes as actually trying to design a better system. So what thoughts have you got on a better oh, system? Well, I'm so glad you <laughs> There's quite a... I mean, I think there's what's a better system as a transition and what's a better system in the long term. I think as a transition, we need to have something where distributed generation actually does get some type of rebate on the network costs and the reason I say that is if we don't get that we are going to see lots of consumers installing batteries so that they can take lots of their load behind the meter not because that's a sensible outcome for the system but because our tariffs were designed for a different system make that cost effective it's not cost effective in a real way, it's cost effective because we have tariffs that are no longer fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. And if we don't change that and change that quite soon, we're going to have loads of people taking loads of their load behind the meter 
in a way that... The, the death spiral. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's not a trivial thing. I think it's a really poor outcome for the whole for community. Everyone, yeah. So that's So I think as a transition tariff or system, we need something that really addresses that. And it needs to happen fast because people will just start doing it. In the longer term, I think there's a number of ways you can do it. I think, look, I think maybe what you do is you go to something where people really pay a pretty much fixed cost to be connected to the network, maybe according to the maximum that they use. And maybe they get a discount on that if they have storage, if they allow other services to come from that storage. That would be one model. I think they actually, you know, we need to have some work where we look at these and then test them. We test them against social justice, we test them against least cost outcomes for the system, we test them against network stability. Does network stability, we test them against does this actually encourage renewables because we should remember that mm, that is also one of the transitions that we are really needing to make and is well, in everybody's interest. Point we want to come to, yes. yeah. Anyway, so that that's I think there's there's what we need to do in the short term and where we need to go in the long term. And how do we start this whole process? In terms of tariffs? It's changing things. Unfortunately our institutions are very slow. So the institution the uh, Australian Energy Market Commission, the AEMC, is the one that we, which is tasked with... Can you with just explain that? So we difference were just between AMO and AEMC? Already talking about a AEMO, AEMO, oh, yes. which operates the net, NEM. Yes, the market. The market. And then we also have AEMC. Yes. Commission. Yes. What does that do? They are the, the body charged with making the rules which AEMO so they, operates right. under. So they deal with rule change requests and they are meant to make sure that the rules are delivered the best outcomes. So they should in their charter have transitioning to 100% renewables? Unfortunately they don't have that in their charter. <laughs> Funny that you mention that. What they have in their charter at the moment is that the electricity system must operate in the best long-term interests of consumers and I can't stability and price reliability, things. price, stability. Now, personally, I would take in the long term interest of consumers, include, for example, going to 100% renewable energy because number one, consumers want mm. that, and number two, who is going to be affected by climate change if not consumers? Absolutely. However, they have not chosen that interpreter, and, and neither is there a social justice, in, in other words, an equity yes. objective yes. in there. I think one of the, it is actually important that there should be both of those, that the, it's called the National Electricity Objective, or the NEO, should actually be modified so it explicitly includes, as well as, uh, of course it should include safety and reliability and the long term of interest of consumers, it needs to include the environment and it needs to include equity because clearly it's not enough to have the long-term interests of mm. consumers and assume that those are implicit. So broadly, just on these 
acronyms. Yes. The, the NEO, the objectives, um, the AEMC, the commission. Um, makes the rules. Makes the rules for those for the AEMO. The who Australian operates the, op the market. So the who operates AEMC the does the NEO and the AEM. No, they, does the no, everybody <laughs> operates under the NEO. The National oh, Electricity right. Objective is what we all operate oh, okay. under. This has been absolutely fascinating, Jay. I want to take us just quickly in the last moments mm. back to where you started. And you just referenced it there where you said Australia, again, is a very lucky country in terms of renewables. From our political leaders' point of view, Australia is also an extremely lucky country in terms of fossil fuels. And they see no reason not to keep using those. Um, we obviously, as BZE, see, see every reason not to keep using them. But uh, what sort of arguments would you say when they say, look, we can keep producing this um, power dirt cheap, literally dirt cheap in the case of Victoria's brown coal? I think it's really important that our leaders start actually looking towards our future prosperity and we are a very large energy exporter, we export a lot of coal. Josh says we have a moral duty to do this to India. <laughs> um, there won't be a market for that coal in the future. It's not just Australia that's acting on climate, the world is acting on climate. China has already peaked their coal con you know their coal consumption has already peaked 3 years ago so China and India have very large coal resources of, of their own as their coal consumption drops they will not be importing coal they will be using their domestic supplies as will every other country in the world Again, that market Min will collapse minister frodenberg says ours is cleaner coal and also it's used for steel production and it's well, because of much that, higher yeah. grade coal than India can or China can produce. Most of our exports are thermal coal for energy production and that is what we are talking about expanding our capacity oh, okay. in the, the Galilee coal. Basin okay. and the bulk of it is thermal coal. Yep. That is not going to have a market in the future. On the other hand there are plenty of projects at least probably three I can think of at the moment that are actually looking at can we use our unbelievable solar resources to actually go down the hydrogen conversion path into gas for export. Mm. This would actually mean that Australia has an energy export industry that is sustainable way into the next century. So. I do not understand why we're looking at preserving last century's industry rather than actually looking forwards. And I think it's, I find it very disturbing that we're not looking to the future. Which is also the premise of the BZE Australian Renewable Energy Superpower Report. It says exactly that. Jay, thank you so much. We've been listening to an interview with Jay Rutovich. If you would like to read more, you can see her articles on the Conversation website or the website for the University of Technology, Sydney. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others we have done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and would like to donate, just go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening 
and hope we'll catch you again next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.